You know, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me just how God works in life. Yeah? So we sang about trust. We heard a testimony about trust. And I'm going to preach to you today about trust. This, this isn't planned. I never sat down this week. I'm like, you know what? Caitlin, what are you, what are you doing your testimony on? Steve, people, what are you, what are you singing about? It, it never went down like that. And so I just find it really ironic. And maybe actually just fantastic that we have this whole theme of, of trust today. And so just before we get in here, I, I have this fascination with languages. I, I like languages. Um, I can speak a bit of Zulu. I can speak a bit of Spanish and French. Um, but that, Afrikaans as well. But now when I say that, I, I'm not like fluent. I can speak maybe a phrase or a sentence, just enough to greet people. And as I was preparing this week, I was actually sat down with Adam at the church offices, and we were talking about some of the phrases that we use here in Newfoundland, some of the sayings that we have, some of the words. And, and for all intents and purposes, people looking from the outside in might say, hey, that is a different language. And so I, I, really, I really like to look at languages. I like to unpack them. I like to know the, the word origins, the etymologies, and, and where things came from. And I think we'd all agree that there are a lot of things that we say here that, you know, maybe we take for granted. We don't really know where they came from. And so as I was talking with Adam, I was looking through all, uh, we were talking about a bunch of phrases and, and words, and I came across one that I've used, and I'm sure many of you have used, I lao. <laughs> I apostrophe L-O-W. And I don't even know if that's how you spell it. I lao. It basically means I doubt it or I don't believe you. Now, there's other ways you can use it, but that's pretty much how we generally use it. And I'll give you an example. I went out jigging this afternoon, and I caught me 500 cod. Yes, but I lie, you did. Right? I doubt it. I don't believe that you, you caught that many. And if we, were to, if we were to newfanize our Bible, this is what you'd see in verse 18. This is what you'd see in verse 18. Zechariah is basically saying to Gabriel, the angel, Hey, Gabriel, I allow you will. And we laugh, but it's true. But that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about disbelief and trust. I want to look at Zechariah's disbelief. Because as we'll see, this, this was a man who was given this amazing news. And instead of trusting in God, from the overflow of his heart came disbelief. You see it in how he responds in verse 18. And, and then you see it in Gabriel's rebuke in verse 20. And so again, just so we're on the same page, I'll, I'll define it. Disbelief is the inability to trust that something is what it is. For Zechariah, God said, I'm going to do X. And Zechariah was like, I allow you are. I don't believe it. I disbelieve it. In fact, give me proof. But what I really want to ask us, and what I want to wrestle with today is, when does disbelief become a sin? Because I'm not convinced that all disbelief is. Some is, some isn't. So for example, let's say someone were to give you a lottery ticket on your birthday, and if you ever won, you know, come talk to me. But if someone were to give you a lottery ticket, you go and you check it, and you find out you're the winner of a gazillion dollars. I don't know about you, but I would stand in disbelief that I had just come into a large amount of money. But there's another type of disbelief that is sin. And this is why I like our passage today, because as we'll see, Zechariah gives us a very real example of what that looks like. 
And so if there's anything I want you to walk away with this week, it's this. As we look at this idea of sinful disbelief, I want us to be reminded of two things. First, we all struggle with it. We do. Every one of us. I guarantee that there have been times, maybe even right now, where we've doubted or disbelieved or had a hard time believing that God, I don't know, cares or loves you or or that he's even near to you or whatever. And then secondly, he is more than faithful to see us through it. He won't abandon us. He won't leave us. He won't forsake us. And so, as, as with any time I preach, and as any time Steve preaches or any of the elders preach here, I want to give you some context about what's happening, okay? Because we've come into Luke 1, we're 18 verses in, some stuff has happened, and so we have these, this couple, uh, actually now we have Zechariah, but he, he's married to his wife Elizabeth, uh, and they're the big elephant in the room for Zechariah and Elizabeth is that Elizabeth can't have kids. She can't. She wants them, but it's just not happening. They've been praying and praying and praying and it just hasn't happened. But then you have her husband, Zechariah. Yeah? Here's Zechariah. He's serving in the temple. He's performing all his priestly duties when all of a sudden an angel, Gabriel, appears before him. That's verse 12. And he says, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. I mean, praise the Lord. If you're Zechariah, you might be like, Woo! All right, Lord, fantastic. The the prayer has been heard, but then you come to verse 18, and Zechariah opens his mouth, and he says, how can I know this? How can I know this? You see, Zechariah stands before this messenger of God, one who speaks on behalf of God Almighty, on behalf of the God, I might remind you, who cannot lie. He cannot lie, and he asks for proof. This is sinful disbelief. It's a type of disbelief that says, God, I don't trust you. Because that's what it comes down to with Zechariah. Trust. And this is why I said it's so, it's so funny that we, we've been singing, we've, we've heard a testimony about trust, and now we're talking about trust. So someone definitely here today needs to hear about trusting and disbelief. And so if you're taking notes today in church, I really encourage you to do so. Here's how we're going to break this down. I've got three points. Three points. Point one, sinful disbelief denies the power of God. Sinful disbelief denies the power of God. Point two, God is faithful, now listen to this, to discipline our disbelief. God is faithful to discipline our disbelief. Point three, God always stays true to his word. God always stays true to his word. Cool? Get some nods, good. All right, so let's do this. First point, sinful disbelief denies the power of God. Verse 18, how can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. You know, there's this fantastic uh, passage in, in 2 Corinthians that goes like this, for we walk by faith and not by sight. It's, it's a beautiful reminder that uh, for the Christian, that's what the walk is all about. Because here's the reality. None of us have ever seen Christ or talked one-on-one with Christ in, as, as I'm talking to you now, or walked or lived or journeyed with him. We weren't there when he was born, we weren't there when he died, and we weren't there when he resurrected. And see, everything we know and believe 
comes from this book. And there's a whole lot of facts and information in this book, but we, we can't deny that there's an element of faith required to trust that what's in it is true. And it dawned on me today that as, as I was preparing, just how true that is, and here's why. Because facts and knowledge and information don't equal faith. You can have all the facts in the world about Jesus and yet have no faith in him. You can study theology and doctrine and church practice or whatever all day long and still not trust him. You can have a PhD or a master's or a bunch of little letters beside your name and yet not know him. In fact, here's the kicker. You may call yourself a Christian and go to church every single Sunday and yet not be a disciple of him. That's what we see with Zechariah. Here's a man who studied and knew the law inside and out. He was a priest in the temple. He knew all the ins and outs of how to serve God. He knew all the stories. He knew his people's history. He intellectually believed all the things to be true. But when life didn't go as planned, the facts and his knowledge and information weren't enough to ground him. He needed proof. He needed more evidence. You see, Zechariah trusted in his own opinion, in his own reasoning, in his own understanding, instead of trusting in the living God. Instead, his faith gave way to disbelief. Again, what does he say? Give me proof. I'm an old man. I don't know, Gabriel, if you've noticed this, but it's not biologically possible for me and Elizabeth to have children. In other words, Lord, I don't know, or sorry, I don't trust what you're saying. That's the root of what's going on with Zechariah. Trust, or actually lack thereof. This is where disbelief becomes a sin. And here's why I mentioned this before, but God cannot lie. He can't. So either the angel is lying to Zechariah, which means that Luke's account here is based on a lie, and worse, God is a liar. Or Zechariah's trusted in someone else. Those are your only two options when you look at it like this. And to justify his disbelief, he asks for proof. And this should be, church, this should be a huge warning for us because we can walk around all day saying, I got faith, I believe, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good with God. And, and I'm sure Zechariah thought this way as well. But let me ask you, how are you doing when life doesn't go as planned? You see, we have no problem trusting in God when life is great. We trust when there's money in the bank, when we've got a home to live in, when you have a job, when your car is working or whatever. But when life doesn't go as expected, how are you faring out? What about when gas prices are going up? I drive a minivan, and for all the minivan owners, you'd appreciate this, but my minivan is about as aerodynamic as a loaf of bread going down the highway. I put 70 bucks, and the next day, it, it's gone. So it hurts. I don't like putting gas in the van. I like carpooling. It's much more economic. But what do you do when, what do you do when your marriage is falling apart? or your kids aren't turning out the way you hoped they would, or you've lost your job, or you got COVID, or some sickness, or when the stresses of life are piling up. And listen, I'm with you. I am. It's so easy to say I walk by faith and not by sight, but if we're going to be honest with, with ourselves, I mean really honest, it's probably more like, Lord, I am trying to walk by faith, but I need proof because I'm scared and I'm anxious and I don't know what life would be like if I'm not in control. That's probably closer to the truth. But here's the thing. It's not wrong to ask God for a sign or to confirm 
his will or his plan. I don't want us to see that in the text, but when Zechariah did ask, it was because of his posture. His posture, his heart was wrong before the Lord. His intentions were wrong. I mean, if you look ahead, we see something similar. We won't get in this today, but in verse 34, you see someone who is given a similar message, a similar situation, and she responded differently. This is what we see with Mary. She asks a very similar question. Like Zechariah, Gabriel comes to Mary and basically says that you're going to have a child. And Mary, for the life of her, she can't figure out how this is going to happen. I mean, she's a virgin. Stuff needs to happen to have kids. And being a virgin doesn't exactly pave the way for her to have a child. And she says to Gabriel, how can this be? How can this be? Zechariah's how can I know this is very different to Mary's how can this be? Because unlike Mary, Zechariah took his eyes off God. You see, Mary asked out of, out of a posture of faith or trust. I don't understand this, Lord. I, I don't. But you are God, you are good, and you know what you are doing, and with you all things are possible. Zechariah from a posture of disbelief. I don't understand this, Lord, and I, I need you to give me proof that what you say you're going to do, you're going to do. But here's the crazy thing, right? Here's the crazy thing. Zechariah had all the signs that he needed. For a man who spent his whole life learning the scriptures and memorizing them, it seems to me that he forgot about women like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Samson's mother and Hannah and David's first wife, Michal, all of whom were barren and couldn't have children. Yet God, the God of the universe who created these women, he opened up their wombs to have children. So why would Elizabeth be any different? God's done this before. There's precedence. There's evidence that Zechariah could have looked to, to confirm. And at the end of the day, it's not that Zechariah disbelieved. I mean, Mary had an element of disbelief, but Zechariah's disbelief was inadvertently sinful because it denied that God could do what he said he was going to do. And sometimes it, it takes a bit of discipline for us to trust in what God is doing. And as a dad, I get to experience this firsthand with my kids. How many times have I said to them things like, don't touch the stove. Don't go outside without a parent. Don't do this. Don't do that. Right? It's a blessing to be able to discipline kids to bring them back onto the straight path. And they ask me, Daddy, why shouldn't I touch a stove? Well, because it's hot and it will hurt you. So just, just trust me. I, I don't want you to learn from experience. And every now and again, I'll let them inch closer and closer and let them feel the heat and, the, and to grasp what it means when I say don't touch the stove. Because over time, with some discipline, their behavior starts to change. I don't punish them for, for wanting to touch the stove. No, but I am trying to correct their behavior so that they will trust in what I'm saying and not touch the stove. And this brings me to my second point. God is faithful to discipline our disbelief. Listen again to what Luke says in verse 19. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen I think John Anderson actually read this much better than what I am. So good on you, John. You will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because 
you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And I just want to stop for a second and just highlight something here, okay? Zechariah is not being punished. He's not. He's being disciplined. And this is, this is important because there's a huge difference between the two. And so if you're taking notes, you want to write this down, please do so. Punishment aims to stop the behavior in the moment. Punishment aims to stop the behavior in the moment, while discipline aims to correct the behavior over time. Punishment in the moment, discipline over time. Punishment is a quick fix. Punishment, our discipline has a long-term approach, or a long-game approach. And I'll, I'll give you some examples uh, of, that, of what discipline looks like. But for now, I want you to know that Zechariah is being disciplined for his disbelief. And don't miss this, all right? Don't miss what Gabriel isn't saying. He isn't saying, because you didn't believe, this isn't going to happen, right? Because you didn't believe, this isn't going to happen. No, whether Zechariah believed it or not, Elizabeth would become pregnant. John would be born, and he would prepare a way for the Lord. In fact, what makes me laugh as I read this is that the very sign that he asks for in verse 18, he now becomes And Gabriel's like, you want a sign? All right, here's your sign. Because you didn't believe my words, you will become silent and unable to speak. That's your sign. Not only for you, but for the people around you. Because Zechariah took his eyes off God instead of trusting the very word of God. He disbelieves it. And then in a way that only God can do, he disciplines Zechariah. Through Gabriel, mind you. But you don't see the effects of his discipline until verses 62 and 64 towards the end of chapter 1. But essentially, Zechariah goes from disbelief to songs of praise and rejoicing in what God has done and who God is. And that's what discipline aims to do. It, it, it transforms, it corrects, it informs, it realigns. Yes, it aims to stop the behavior, but it does it by revealing the sin and performing open heart surgery on it. Right? Jesus tells us that what, whatever comes out of the mouth is the overflow of the heart. Right? What we say and we do reflects what's in here. And what came out of Zechariah's mouth, his response, was a result of a disbelieving heart. His response was a heart issue. In fact, I could easily say it was a worship issue. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. God doesn't sit back and let this go unchecked. Because discipline is good. In fact, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. This is Hebrews 12. But he, God, does it discipline for our benefit. Why? So that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Or what about Proverbs 3? Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. And how about Job? How about our favorite Old Testament, well, my, one of my favorite Old Testament characters, Job? He says in, in chapter 5, How happy is the person whom God corrects. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. Because discipline is good. It is. And God disciplines those he loves. And when we are disciplined like Zechariah, we grow we grow. And so the question we need to be asking ourselves is this, do we see growth and spiritual maturity in our lives? Are we becoming more like Christ 
Are we seeing victory over sin? If not, why? Because I don't, I don't believe for a second that you can call yourself a Christian and not experience the discipline of the Father above. So let me give you two ways that God has disciplined me in the past, all right? Let me just give some flesh to these ideas. First, through his word. Through his word. There's many times in my walk with God where he's revealed sin by me reading his word, and he's rebuked me, rebuked me and corrected me and realigned me to be less like the patterns of the world, that's Romans 12, and more into the image of Christ through his word. That's why you got to be in the word. That's the first. And the second is through other people. Listen, long story short, I'll try to, you know, I'm just looking at time. I want to try to, I want to tell you about what happened to me earlier this week. So last weekend, uh, I made some decisions. Um, and and it, they, were, they were poor leadership decisions. I, I made some decisions and the, the downstream ripple effect, uh, it was felt by many people. Um, and so anyway, I come to work on Monday morning and Pastor Steve, he calls me into his office and we have a chat about some leadership decisions that I had made over the weekend. And, and it wasn't fun. <laughs> I, I, like, in all honesty, it, it wasn't fun. But, you know, as, as the, the man who disciples me, as my friend, he, he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. He tells me what I need to hear. And sometimes he tells me what I want to hear, but that's few and far between. <laughs> Love you, brother. And so I, I leave the meeting, and I, 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 I feel like I've grown. I've identified the areas that, uh, you know, God wanted to call out. And... I leave it, but I'm still feeling gutted. Like, I'm feeling wounded because, you know, no one likes to be, have their sin revealed to them, right? And so I'm going throughout the day, and I'm doing my work, and I get home, and in a completely different vein to what we had discussed, I'm, I'm sat down with my wife at the, at the end of the night. Kids are in bed, and I'm like, honey, I, I feel like I've, I've dropped the ball as uh, leading you, uh, leading the kids, and just leading my family spiritually, over the last few weeks. And she looks at me and she says, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I'm like, well, thanks. Thanks for kicking me while I'm down, right? But she says to me, but Jesus loves you. And so what are you going to do about it? You see, in both situations, the sin was revealed. God was speaking to me through multiple people about a very specific thing. And I grew I learned, I, re, I was rebuked, I, I handed the sin back over to God. This is what happens when you're disciplined. You see, Zechariah was disciplined for his disbelief. That's what we see in verses 19 and 20. It's the beginning of it. It takes another 40 verses and nine months, but you see a changed heart. You see a guy who goes from the depths of disbelief to singing songs of praise and prophesying over his newborn son. And why? Because God is faithful to discipline those whom he loves. The only thing I want to highlight in verse 21 to 23 is this, because I think there's a real nugget of truth that we need to grasp onto, especially in verse 23. And here it is. Even as Zechariah was being disciplined, even as Zechariah was being disciplined, God still welcomed him into communion and fellowship. And that's important because I think for a lot of us, it's easy to equate discipline with punishment. It's easy to equate discipline with punishment. And then you add God into the mix and the lie becomes God wants nothing to do with me. But that could be farther from the truth. Check this out. 
verse 23. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. You see, Zechariah didn't stop. God still disciplined him, yes, and yet he continued to do what God had called him to do, to serve God and minister to the people. And I don't want us to lose sight of this, right? This is so important. And just for the record, Christianity isn't this 90-minute thing we do on a Sunday. This isn't Christ- well, sorry, this is an element of what we are as Christians, but this isn't the all-encompassing thing of Christianity. It's not the Sunday uh, morning worship service. It's an everyday thing. When we talk about Calvary being a church, we're not talking about it being something we go to. Church isn't something you go to. We are the church. As beautiful as, as this building is, it is not the church. No, when we gather on Sundays, we gather as the church. Yeah? The church is community. It's family. It's a family that has needs, hurts, and pains. It's filled with stories and celebrations and memories. And as a family, we serve God together and we minister to each other and the community around us. We do life together. We pray for one another. We hold each other accountable for sin. We cry together, laugh together, and rejoice together. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one suffers, we all suffer. We serve each other, we point each other to Christ, and we love one another. Now, we will get it wrong from time to time. We will. There's no one here in this sanctuary who's perfect. But Christ is. And he's the one we look to. And like Zechariah, we might have to endure a bit of discipline. Maybe a lot of discipline. Maybe as a whole church. And maybe as individuals. But like Zechariah, we don't stop. We don't stop serving God. And I might argue that if we did, we might be disciplined for it. Because we don't live for ourselves. We don't worship ourselves. We worship and serve him even when he disciplines us. Amen? God's discipline is good. God's discipline is good. And we can trust in him. We absolutely can. And this brings me to my third point. God always stays true to his word. Verse 24 and 25. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. You know, one of the things, uh, I hope you caught this, one of the things I'm trying to drive home today is that in this text, Zechariah had trust issues, right? Remember, here's a man who was a trained priest in the temple system, and for all intents and purposes, out of anyone, this, what happened, his wife becoming pregnant should not have come as a surprise to him. It shouldn't. Like I said, he knew the stories. He knew the history. He knew what God could do. I mean, he served the living, breathing Yahweh. But yet, despite all of this, when we look at Zechariah, it proves to us that head knowledge And having all the information and all the facts does not necessarily equal trust. Because the issue, the issue is not God. The issue is not God. The issue is us. And before I get into verse 24 and 25, I want to remind us of who God is. Just just quickly. 
God is infinite. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God doesn't change. I, the Lord God, do not change. God is self-sufficient. The Father has life in himself. God is all-powerful. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God is all-knowing. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. God is everywhere. Where can I go from your spirit? God is wise. How unsearchable and unfathomable his ways. God is faithful. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations. And God is good. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? Amen. Nearly all of what I quoted was from the Old Testament. The same Old Testament that Zechariah knew and memorized, and yet in this moment, he never relied upon. These are deep truths about God. And in this moment, it all just went away. And if this is what can happen for a man who spent his entire life in the Word, then what does it mean for us if we can't even carve out 15 minutes in a day to read and spend time with God? What do you expect when life goes unexpected? When someone close to us dies? When you're struggling with sin? When the evil one is shooting his arrows at you? When you've lost your job or your world is just simply crashing down all around you? Because you know what? It, it, it's, it's not God who changes. The issue is not with God. He's still the same yesterday and today and forever. He's, a, he's still the same God who said, I know every hair on your head. I've marked out every day of your life. So come to me and I will give you rest. And he will stay true to his word. That's why you can trust him even with your disbelief. Do you believe that? Or are you still asking for proof? You see, God was more than capable and able to make Elizabeth pregnant. He was. God causing Elizabeth to become pregnant was not contingent on Zechariah's faith and trust. God didn't need Zechariah. He didn't send Gabriel to ask for permission. No, he told him, this is what I'm going to do. So when we come to verse 24, it should come to no surprise to us either that Elizabeth is pregnant. I mean, 400 years earlier through the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, God said this would happen. And I love her response. The Lord has done this for me. Verse 24. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. And don't miss this. Don't miss what Elizabeth means by her disgrace. The sad reality for Elizabeth was carrying around the stigma of not being able to have children because in that world, in that time, barrenness was indicative of God's curse upon you. People believed that. As wrong as it was, people believed that. So she would have to carry around the stigma for decades. And yet in one swift motion, God takes it away. He takes away her disgrace. He restores her. He restores her physically. He restores her identity. He restores her mentally. And he restores her emotionally. But in a deeper sense, this is a foreshadowing of what's to come. You see, what God does to Elizabeth by taking away her disgrace, God will do for the many through the death of Christ. Hold on to that. When I was in Bible college, um, 
I was learning, I went through a bunch of courses on the Old Testament sacrificial system, and, and Leviticus 16 always blows my mind. Basically, Leviticus 16 talks about how uh, two goats would be brought to the high priest to be sacrificed. One goat was sacrificed for the people's sins, and the other one was called the scapegoat. Basically, the priest would put his hands on the goat's heads, uh, on the goat's head, hopefully the goat didn't have two heads, on the goat's head, uh, and then the, the sins of the people, he would confess the sins, and they would be symbolically transferred onto the, goat, the head of the goat, and then the goat would be led out into the wilderness to die or wander or whatever. But it, would, it was symbolic of the, the people's sins being taken away, their disgrace being taken away. And it was done over and over and over again. It never ended. It, all, it, was to, it was to serve uh, uh, and to show the people that there was a need for a greater sacrifice, a greater scapegoat. That's who Christ was. As the Lamb of God, his blood paid the price for our sins, and as a scapegoat, he was led outside the city, quite literally outside the city, to be crucified, to bear our sin and our disgrace. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside of the gate so that we might so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. So let us go outside the camp bearing his disgrace. Outside the gate, Christ removed the stain of sin. He took away the disgrace of sin upon himself so that we might stand in his righteousness and be free from the bondage of sin. Elizabeth praised God because he took away her disgrace. And as the story unfolds, I have no doubt that her praise continued and only increased knowing how God was going to use her child, John the Baptist. Because in time, John would say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is why you can trust him. Because he always, always, always stays true to his word. So where do we go from here? What do we do with all this? Well, I, I don't have anything deeply profound or new to tell you. I don't have some sort of like huge mic drop moment. But what I will say is this. What I will say is this. Here we have an example of a guy who struggled with trusting God. I think we can all relate with Zechariah. I really do. Like I said, I don't, I don't think there's anyone in this room who, has, who hasn't wrestled with or, or doubted or, or stood before God like Zechariah in disbelief. And I don't think it's for a lack of evidence. I really don't. I mean, you can go sit at Signal Hill uh, today, yesterday, and look at the sky above, and look at the ocean below, and look at our province around us, and you can see the evidence for God all around us. The skies proclaim his handiwork, right? But don't miss this. God didn't pack up shop when Zechariah was in a moment of weakness. He didn't. He never abandoned Zechariah to his disbelief. And, and remember, you're not the only one who has ever struggled with faith and trust. Abraham, one of the giants of the faith that Paul calls out in Romans 4, even he struggled with the promise that God gave him. So much so that he took it into his own hands and tried to fulfill it through Hagar. And yet, God was still faithful. What about all the apostles who abandoned Christ as he was being tortured and murdered? No, after the resurrection, Christ went to them. He ate with them, discipled them, and I would say disciplined them. He never abandoned them. So when you're overcome with disbelief, bring it to God. Spend time with him. 
pray to him. Soak in his word. Don't let this collect dust. The words of life are in this. He always stays true to his word. And the last time I checked, he's got a perfect track record with doing that. And so if you're wrestling with trusting in him, bring it to him. Now, yes, he may very well say, okay, okay, but your trust and doubts and disbelief are because of this other thing that we need to take care of first. And if that's the case, trust in his discipline. Genesis 4 verse 7 says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Call it disbelief or lack of trust or doubt or whatever. But bring it to God and let his word guide you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, what a privilege it is to handle your word, to preach it. I pray, Lord, that hearts would be changed today. Lives would be changed. Lord, one of the promises is that your word will not go out and come back void. Your word transforms, it changes, it aligns us. You're a God who's not content to just sit back and watch us wrestle with sin. And so Lord, as we go out through this week, would your spirit guide us? Convict us, Lord, rebuke us. Be gentle with us. We love you, Lord. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.